0: Hello, and welcome to The Powers That Be, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. Welcome. First up this week, I'll be talking to Matt Bellany about the Star Wars drama unfolding at Disney, Britney Spears' Star Lawyer, and Succession's brilliant new storyline. Then Julia Yaffe comes by to talk about the infrastructure bill and what it means for Joe Biden's approval rating and next year's midterms, as well as the Rorschach test that is the Kyle Rittenhouse trial in Wisconsin. These are the great sort of conversations you can only have with expert insider reporters who really know what's going on. I hope that you enjoy The Powers That Be. Hey everyone, joining me on The Powers That Be is Matt Bellany. Uh, our man in Chevy at Hills talking to me over Zoom here in the Venice borough. Matt, did you watch Succession last week? Uh, I did. And not only did I watch it last week, but it was
1: my second time watching that episode because I actually watched the first seven via the HBO press site a couple months ago. And I knew (laughs) this episode with the shareholder vote was coming up. So I watched it the day it aired as a second time, this my favorite of the season. Wow! I didn't know you had all the secrets. You didn't tell me yeah, this. I actually know what's coming up, but uh, but this was this was a great one. This was like Succession at its best, in my opinion, because it was basically a pure comedy. It was just kind of a slapsticky comedy of errors. It was amazing.
0: And, and I think this weekend's, sorry, this last episode demonstrated that this show is incredibly astute in talking about. The powers that be, uh, in this case, the powers of media. Uh, and, I, and I have a hunch that the Venn diagram between succession viewers and uh, readers of Puck News is a perfect circle. So I, I, everyone, I think, got the joke that <laughs> Sandy Furness and his daughter, Sandy, seem to be a, a parody of the Redstones. That, was that your takeaway, too? Definitely.
1: I mean, first of all, this show has not been shy over the years. I've, you know, The showrunner Jesse Armstrong has said that the Logan family is a mix of mostly the Murdochs, but it's got other elements of other media families in it. The storylines have always run closest to the Murdochs because, you know, obviously Rupert has four children. He's got the eldest that's not really involved in the business, and he's got the three younger, which are two sons and a daughter. So people have always made analogies. And then last season, there was this more liberal media family that pretty clearly was modeled after the Sulzburgers that own the New York Times. And those storylines were amazing. Then this season, about halfway through the season now, we get this image of the big rival family. And the Sandy character is all of a sudden not able to speak, has some kind of ailment, and is communicating only with his sort of, maybe scheming, maybe not scheming daughter. (laughs) Pretty clearly that is the Sumner Redstone and Sherry Redstone stand in. They're kind of questioning, wait a second, maybe he is talking to her. Maybe he's not (laughs) saying what she's saying that she's saying. And obviously people who know the Viacom saga know that Sumner and Sherry had a very tumultuous relationship. And towards the end of his life, when he was incapacitated and could barely talk, There were a lot of questions as to whether she was acting in his best interests or whether she was kind of using that relationship to take the company under her own wing and uh, and kind of use some of her father's brutal tactics on him.
0: Yeah. And that's sort of the indication we got from the younger Sandy uh, at the end of the episode uh, when she's wink-winking at Shiv and cutting a deal about board seats for Waystar Royco. But I did watch the episode uh, with subtitles, which I have been doing. I've been watching most content with subtitles, actually, because I do feel like it brings the script to life in certain ways. Uh, and especially, uh, I need subtitles for The Great British Baking Show um, because I don't understand a lot of the vernacular. But when older Sandy was talking to younger Sandy in, the, in that room, the subtitle just said, Mumbles. So... Presumably he was saying something, (laughs) but we don't know.
1: It's great because it adds such a level of complexity there because everybody, you know, the elephant in the room is that nobody actually has any power except these two guys who own and run their companies. And in this episode, we had Logan, who was kind of out of it and causing everyone to freak out because they had to actually make decisions on their own. And then we had this other rival who was there and, you know, I guess with it but we didn't actually know what he thought. It was all being communicated through his daughter who we don't know whether to trust or not. It's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah. And I also think at one point during this show, I hit pause and I turned to my girlfriend and I said, can you just like sum up for me in one or two sentences, why you like this show so much, which I also love it. I just wanted to hear it, it being articulated like why the show has such a devoted following. And she she just said it just reveals that the people who run the world and run our media culture are either A, just like us, <laughs> or B, incompetent boobs who are, you know, malevolent actors who are just kind of winging it. And I think that this episode kind of showed that in a lot of ways.
1: Oh, my God. The whole storyline with the president and how, you know, no one <laughs> wanted to talk to him. They had to put Roman on with the president. And it, I, what I think it does is like brilliantly satirizes just how nobody knows what they're doing. Yes. These people who claim to be the masters of the universe and you know are dictating what we watch, how we consume news, how we how we see the world, how we interact, they have no idea what they're doing. And is there anything sadder than a shareholder meeting at a you know Manhattan hotel where they send out a guy who's clearly a lackey to just vamp? For, you know, hours (laughs) while they're trying behind the scenes to not lose the company. Like, everybody's desperate. It's kind of like, I mean, it's the same reason everybody liked Veep. Yes. What Veep did to politics, Succession does to business and media.
0: I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Vamp is such a funny word, too, that I feel like is a media word. I first heard that when I started working at CNN and I was, you know, low on the totem pole, but in the control rooms during... You know, big breaking news moments and the EP would lean into the into Wolf Blitzer's earpiece or something and be like vamp vamp when they didn't have any copy. They're waiting for like actual AP updates to come in. Vamp means improvise. And pretend you're not improvising. Improvise and pretend you're not, which, you know, in cable news is actually an important skill.
1: Oh, God. Some would argue it's the only skill.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Correct. Uh, Matt, you, you wrote this week for Puck, Changing Topics, about Disney, more specifically uh, Lucasfilm. Um, and you wrote a piece called, It's Time to Take Star Wars Movies Away from Kathy Kennedy. Matt, who is Kathy Kennedy?
1: Sure. I mean, Kathy Kennedy is a really interesting and somewhat polarizing figure in the Star Wars universe. She is a very successful film producer over the past 30, 40 years. She worked very closely with Steven Spielberg, produced some of the movies that are my favorites, probably your favorites, like you know, Back to the Future, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Goonies, all those 80s and 90s movies that you love. Chances are she had a hand in it. She was handpicked by George Lucas when he sold his company to Disney to run Lucasfilm. And that includes everything Star Wars from the action figures you buy for your kid, to the movies, to the TV shows. And by most metrics, the Star Wars brand is bigger and more active than ever. They have a really, really good thing going on. Disney Plus with The Mandalorian and all the spinoffs that are coming from there. The business of uh, visual effects via Industrial Light & Magic, their visual effects company, is doing really well. They, you know, the consumer products, you know, there's Star Wars crap everywhere you look. They've incorporated the brand into the theme parks in a way that never happened before Disney owned it. There is one glaring problem in the Star Wars universe, and it's the movies. The movies, by most objective markers, have been a disaster. That's not to say they haven't made money. There have been five movies released by Disney since they took over. They have collectively made more than $6 billion at the box office. So financially, they're okay, but creatively and in terms of where they are going with those movies, they've been a huge miss. It's now we had a a situation last week where yet another planned Star Wars movie, this one that was going to be directed by Patty Jenkins, who famously did Wonder Woman. That movie has been indefinitely shelved. They've had dealings with everyone from the Game of Thrones guys to Ryan Johnson, who did a Star Wars movie and then Knives Out. Those have all been shelved. They can't seem to figure out where the Star Wars movies are going to go from here. And that's on top of the movies that came out, which were polarizing amongst fans and did not exactly create a lot of demand for future movies, which is a problem in the Star Wars world.
0: So the last movie, the last Star Wars movie that came out was The Rise of Skywalker in 2019, which grossed about one billion dollars. That seems like good news. Why is it not?
1: You know what? It does, but it actually was a disappointment. It was about 30% less than the previous Star Wars movie. And it was really creatively puzzling to a lot of people. Now, this is not a critics podcast, so I'm not going to say what movies are good or bad. But I will say that some of the creative choices in that movie, such as bringing back the Emperor, which, you know, a character that died very famously in Return of the Jedi, um, and had never been mentioned in the other Star Wars movies. All of a sudden, was back and the bad guy. And they had. There have been some interesting ideas and things that were explored in the second new movie, uh, The Last Jedi, where ideas like you know the Force could inhabit anybody. It could be something that you know uh, a random kid could have the Force. Those ideas were just kind of dropped in the last movie, and it was felt, it felt to a lot of fans just like a cynical retread fan service, just give the fans of the original trilogy what they want. And that may be okay. You can get to a billion dollars, but you're not going to grow a franchise that way. And when Lucasfilm is in the same company as Marvel, they are both owned by Disney, and you look at what Marvel is doing with their movies, and they are absolutely killing it. Every single one advances the franchise, it takes the story in new directions, it introduces characters that the audience really cares about, and they have a path that is mapped out for the next seven or eight years of what the Marvel Cinematic Universe looks like. That was never the case with Star Wars, and Kathy Kennedy just didn't have a plan going forward. So when you look at that franchise management, you have to start to question the person in charge. Yes. There have been some problems. Star Wars is different than Marvel. Marvel has thousands of characters in comic books that go back decades and decades. Star Wars is a franchise that is built on three movies that George Lucas created in the 70s and 80s. But there is a lot of canon in the Star Wars universe. They could have mined it a lot better for the movies. And we have an example of how that's happening with the Disney Plus shows. I mean, John Favreau and Dave Filoni, who managed the... Star Wars universe for Disney plus, they just hit it out of the park with the Mandalorian and they've been able to create this universe that is going to give rise to other shows that are coming in the next year or two. Uh, The Boba Fett show is the the one that's coming in December, but they've been able to do that in a way that the Star Wars movies have not. And a lot of people in the Disney world and the Star Wars universe are pinning that on Kathy Kennedy.
0: But is it not a notch in her belt though, that if the, future of media is streaming television and these serialized TV projects that air on platforms like Disney+, Plus. those have been hits? Or did she just sort of accidentally <laughs> stumble into that while whiffing on the movie stuff?
1: If you're going to criticize her for the problems with the movies, you have to give her credit for the success on Disney+, and I absolutely do. I mean, most people credit Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni for the success in pulling that off. But when you are Disney it's not good enough to just succeed on one platform. This is perhaps the marquee A-plus Hollywood franchise, the one that every studio, if you ask them, what would you rather have in terms of franchises? A, they would say Marvel, and then B, they would say Star Wars. They are like the A-plus franchise. And if you look at what Marvel is doing, they are succeeding on Disney+, and they're also succeeding in film. The Avengers series, which led up to Avengers Endgame, Avengers Endgame grossed $2.7 billion worldwide and kept growing throughout the franchise. That's what Star Wars should have done. Star Wars should have started with The Force Awakens and over five movies, it should have grown and grown and grown to where they get to The Rise of Skywalker and it is this huge, massive moment that everybody turns out for and it grosses $2 billion plus. It didn't do that. It actually declined from the previous movie. That's a sign that yes, it's still a franchise, but the audience for the franchise was disappointed in how it was being managed, and they didn't show up.
0: Yeah, and they're certainly going to be disappointed that there isn't a Star Wars movie on track to be released for another five years. <laughs> that seems pretty wild at this point. Yeah, when no, Marvel- it will
1: have been. I mean, now they're saying that it will be either 2023 or 2024, oh, okay. but that will have been about five years between movies. And when you are Disney and your marquee franchise is dormant, in theaters for five years, that's a fail. You can't, you can't have that. No,
0: we talked about this last week, but especially up against Marvel when it feels like the cadence of their film releases is literally like every other Thursday.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they're, they're doing three or four a year. And you know, when, when Disney bought Lucasfilm, the CEO, Bob Iger said, we plan to have one star Wars movie every year. Now, he since backtracked on that when he saw that the reaction to the films was not the same as the Marvel films. But their original goal was to have this be a franchise that functioned similarly to Marvel and throughout movies and TV and books and games and theme parks the same way that Marvel does.
0: There's one more thing I want to ask you about this week, and it's a piece you wrote. About Matthew Rosengart, and for people who haven't followed this closely, a judge terminated Britney Spears' conservatorship last week after 13 years. This is the culmination of the hashtag Free Britney movement. Britney superfans have wanted her to get out of this for a long time. So has Britney clearly, but Matt, you kind of you know peel back the curtain a little bit on on this guy and why he was so effective. Like who is who is the the Oz behind? The Free Brittany movement and what's he doing now?
1: So so Matthew Rosengard's an interesting figure. He was a former federal prosecutor. I've known him for years because he has sort of dabbled in entertainment matters. He's represented Sean Penn, he's represented Julie Louis Dreyfus, Casey Affleck, some stars in, in some kind of in a kind of a fixer role. But he at his heart is a federal prosecutor and he know he's very diligent. And what he knew in this situation was that the leverage point with Britney Spears was getting her father in a situation where her father had to explain himself. Jamie Spears was the conservator of the conservatorship. He has been portrayed as, you know, alternatively as the the man who controls Britney or the guy who has been riding her coattails for the last 13 years. He's paid himself some pretty exorbitant fees and percentages of her tour. By a lot of people's estimations, this is not a great guy. And what Rosengard did was he started serving depositions and interrogatories and asking very probing questions about Jamie's role in the conservatorship and what he was actually taking out of it and what he was doing for that money that he got out of it. And lo and behold, what happened was Jamie Spears decided that he wanted to get rid of the entire conservatorship rather than answer questions about his role in it. And that was a great move because ultimately it just it ended up getting him exactly what Britney wanted, which was the conservatorship is terminated. It's over.
0: There's also it felt like a rather sophisticated public relations push in the last couple of years. And by that, I mean, there was a documentary that The New York Times produced that was on FX and Hulu controlling Britney Spears. Um, there was also Britney versus Spears on Netflix, um, both of which were pretty favorable to her. Was he the puppet master behind that, too? Or was he just was, was he just the sort of legal mastermind?
1: I don't believe he was involved in, in getting those off the ground. I don't know what he was doing behind the scenes. I think that the free Britney movement has been going on so long now that it started to get press attention about a year or two ago where people were kind of waking up to the fact that what Britney Spears is in her late thirties now and is still under a conservatorship. Like, how is that possible? She's, she's well enough to perform a Vegas residency, but she's not well enough to drive her own car or make her own medical decisions. Like, how is that possible? So, you know, he came into this situation and the key ruling was just the fact that the judge overseeing the conservatorship allowed Britney to hire her own lawyer. And once that happened, it gave him a window to come in and say, okay, we are now going to clean this up and I know exactly how we're going to do it.
0: Yeah, so so what's next for, for Matthew? And what's next for Brittany, if you have a take? <laughs> uh, well, I
1: know that on, on Friday night hours after the decision... He went out for steak and tequila with his wife, who's a a well-known publicist, Mayor Buxbaum, and some friends. They went to the Polo Lounge, and uh, it was his first time doing anything social in four months. He's been working nonstop. And he also agreed to do a a DJ set uh, on Sirius Radio's uh, Bruce Springsteen channel, He's going to do a DJ set because he's a super fan. But so far, he turned down 60 Minutes. He turned down all these other outlets that wanted to interview him. What's next for Britney? I mean, they have to figure out whether they're going to go after her father now. I mean, her father has been resisting any kind of discovery as to his role. The business manager that was in cahoots with the father and, uh, and has kind of been controlling the purse strings, Lou Taylor. They have to decide whether they're going to go after her. I think Britney will have some decisions to make as to the next steps, but I would not be surprised given how aggressive he has been. If Rosengard is pushing for her to hold these people accountable for their role in all of this.
0: Yeah. That seems like it would make sense, but you don't have any insight into her next album. I assume.
1: Uh, I don't, I do. (laughs) I do feel like if she were to tour and did some kind of emancipation tour, she could probably sell out big open stadiums.
0: Oh, she would crush she would absolutely crush yeah. or, or just post up in Vegas. People will come to her. Yeah. Or,
1: or continue to post uh, weird Instagram videos with her boyfriend.
0: Those are very strange. Those are very strange videos.
1: There is, a whole, there is a whole group out there that believes that you know Brittany needed some kind of supervision and she is not mentally well and that her being free will actually not be a great thing for her. There is that theory out there. I don't know how valid it is and I don't know what to think when it comes to does Britney need some kind of overseer? The fiance is a little, seems a little odd and he just did a big vanity piece about himself in the New York times where it was very clear that he's trying to be known as, you know, a dancer and an actor. And I, you know, we'll see how this works out. But I think on the whole, it's, it's, the, the people I know who know about the conservatorship system say that, It was really ridiculous that she was still under those conservatorship rules.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's that's pretty clear, even whatever you think about her mental capacity. All right, Matt, uh, thanks so much. Talk to you next week. Thank you. Coming up, I talked to Julia Yaffe about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, the infrastructure bill and why it might not be enough to help Joe Biden heading into the midterms. Thanks again for listening to The Powers That Be and for supporting Puck, our new company focused on the inside conversation, the plot that only the insiders know. The real story at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Puck's content is great. I mean, we've already made it to 10 whole podcasts, 10, and we're just getting started. When you subscribe to Puck, you're supporting our great team, empowering us to do the work that really matters and grow our business and pave a path for a new media model. So check us out at puck.news. welcome back everybody to the powers that be i'm peter hamby and i'm now joined by our woman in washington to paraphrase graham green julia yafi sup sup graham green wouldn't say sup
2: <laughs>
0: he would just feel guilty all the time for being a catholic um <laughs> I want to ask you about the BIF, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. That's very Washington, D.C. jargon for one of the biggest spending packages in American history that President Biden signed into law this week. Before getting into the nitty gritty of what's in the bill, which I want to ask you about, Biden's disapproval numbers have only been climbing since August. His approval numbers have been down since then. Will this save him? Will this? Will he get a bounce out of this? Where's the bounce?
2: <laughs> uh, I think that's the, you know, that's the question every Democrat in, in Washington, and especially in the White House, is asking themselves. Uh, I think there's a worry that with BIF and the like, buh, 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 which is the Build Back Better <laughs> plan, if it passes, there's a worry that those programs will kick in only around 2023, so a year after the midterms, and that it won't Be much help i've been thinking about biden's ratings and how we talk about ratings and how it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes like there was a a story that a poll that came out today we're recording this on a wednesday that came out saying that yes in fact voters americans are concerned about biden's age and mental acuity and it's like well the media keeps talking about it and asking the question this open-ended question that doesn't really have an answer because we we don't we don't know, like other than what we see, which seems fine mostly. Like he's an old man who seems in pretty good shape for his age, but is still old, right? But I feel like because the question is constantly being posed, it's coloring, and especially on the right, it's being used as um like a an attack and a cudgel feel like it's coloring people's impressions. It's like constantly asking, you know, when did you stop beating your wife? I think with the ratings, it's a similar thing. Like we, Democrats are worried about falling ratings, worried about falling ratings, worried about falling ratings, worried about inflation, worried about inflation, worried about inflation. And it like colors people's perceptions. I think some of the falling ratings is a very long winded introduction, but some of the falling ratings I think are kind of to be expected, but also part of Americans wishful thinking that we could get rid of Trump and everything would be fixed. When in fact, what Biden inherited was like, you know, a hotel room the morning after Keith Richards stayed in it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like he is a once in a century pandemic. I think at that point, like 600,000 Americans had died, Uh, an economy that was yo-yoing back and forth and kind of constantly teetering on the brink. And, a very deeply divided body politic, like his ratings were never going to stay high. Like no president's ratings stay high, right? There's a Correct. honeymoon period yep. and then they start falling for everybody, including Trump, including Obama. Uh, maybe Bush had a longer honeymoon period because of 9-11. But, you know, this was an exceptionally difficult situation. And I think the ratings kind of reflect that and reflect the fact that there's no easy fix for this. Plus, I think, you know, Republicans have worked really hard to tank his ratings. I think his ratings have started sliding not with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, but with the resurgence of COVID with the Delta variant. And that was very much driven by the red states where there's, you know, all this misinformation fed to them by right wing um, propaganda outlets media outlets, uh, about, you know, the dangers of the vaccine and how COVID is bullshit. And, you know, they've made the situation worse, which makes Biden look worse. And I feel like there's just like a a lot happening there, but I don't know. I don't know if Biff or will help him and the party in the midterms. Yeah. I think the long answer. Sorry.
0: No, I mean, I think that that was one of the fallacies of the, commentary around the Virginia governor's race, which was if they only pass one of these bills before the election, that will help Terry McAuliffe. But I mean, these are long tail spending bills. And in the same way that we saw, you know, American Recovery Act signs on highways years after Obama passed that bill, you know, the the fruit of of this infrastructure bill will be seen in minimum six months One year, two years, three years, and I think, but I think that gets to my next question, though, which is,
2: or, or, sorry to interrupt, are also Obamacare. It was passed, and the wave, the Republican wave in 2010, was just annihilating for Democrats, and now it's an extremely popular feature of the American political landscape that you know Republicans, as much as they have tried, have not been able to undo. In part because it's very popular, but it certainly didn't help Democrats. Right after it was passed, to your point, in fact, it hurt them.
0: It did, and and part of that is the way Republicans define the bill. You know, we all remember. Sorry, many people listening might not remember Sarah Palin coining the phrase "death panels," etc., which was a, you know, both a, a, a way to rally the Republican base, uh, but also, you know, for low information independent voters, that was a concise way of processing at least part of Obamacare, and I think. The more important political outcome right now from the the BIF is the race to define it and message it to the American public. You know, you've seen Democrats in the last couple of days. Biden signed this bill on Monday, Tuesday, Monday. Yeah. OK, so Biden signed this bill on Monday. Immediately you saw Democrats saying President Biden delivers, comparing that with President Trump talking relentlessly about infrastructure, infrastructure and it never actually getting anything done, but, you know, can the White House and Democrats message this? I mean, you know, Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff is, you know, if you live in D.C., work in media, infamously on Twitter, liking certain tweets, <laughs> responding to certain tweets, but, you know, as <laughs> sure we take he sure is, and that's sort of an interesting tea leaf into how the West Wing is thinking about things, and Klain is, you know, I think... A, a capable manager and has been through many crises in Washington, worked for many presidents and vice presidents, um, but is also like deeply aware of, you know, the Washington commentary about the White House, especially on Twitter on Wednesday, which is when we're taping this Wednesday evening Klein tweeted exciting news today. Major retailers. Our shelves are well stocked. Government stats. It was a jobs boom, not a bust. In summer, rating agencies. Build Back Better bill will not add to inflation. COVID team. Ten percent of people aged five to eleven have been vaxed in ten days, five times faster than the adult vaccination rollout. And so this gets to this something that's you...
2: two hundred and eighty characters.
0: Well, there was something shortened that I elaborated on as I spoke it out loud, <laughs> and I think I deserve credit for. Doing that, um, honestly, uh, uh, riffing yeah, on
2: that, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: but you know, I've seen
2: this percolate Good lately. Where, effort.
0: thank you. You know, despite the inflation news and the real fact of inflation, and despite uh, some negative economic indicators out there, there are lots of positive storylines, like these ones. Klein just tweeted about. It sometimes it just feels like they're not getting out there, and so, you know, is that the fault of The Biden administration for not being a compelling enough messenger around the good news, around what's in the infrastructure bill, about what's about to be in the Build Back Better bill, which, you know, I think will pass. In other words, is the media not filtering the good news? Why? Why aren't good stories getting out there? And why is Biden's approval rating continue to slide while there is some good news happening out there?
2: Yeah, I. that's a really good question. I think that the Bi- the Biden White House is trying to do everything they can to change the narrative, which is kind of baked in, right? When did they start negotiating this thing, this summer? Yep. So that's, it's been what, like three, four months of the story of this was just process, negotiate like who's up, who's down, who said no on what thing. Democrats
0: can't get anything done. Washington is stagnant. Exactly
2: right, and not and because it was kind of and I think this is more true of the Build Back Better bill than of the infrastructure bill, which was hammered out pretty quickly. But I think they became kind of well, they were you know linked together, and so because the the number was the top line number was constantly fluctuating, that meant we didn't know what was actually going to be in the bill, so it was harder to talk about what was actually going to be in it, right? And so people just kept talking about the top line number. And it was very easy for Republicans who have a very unified and pretty insular media space, right, and communication space to just talk about Democrat crazy spending. And, like, now I'm sure that once this bill, like, the details come out, is you're already starting to see it, like – Democrats allotted how much for this stupid thing, like $3 million to feed ducks. I made that up. That's not actually in it. But you know, like that, that always happens, right? And I think that's going to be the messaging on the right. And on the other side, you're seeing the Biden White House, you know, they're talking about doing these thousand events. We saw Biden in New Hampshire yesterday, sorry, on Tuesday. And then he's in Detroit on Wednesday. I think this is Designed to drive the news cycle, right? So that if he's having this event, the big papers, the big networks have to cover it and say, like, he's doing this and he's talking about this, right? A desire to, it's like a tactic to wrench the narrative in their direction. The problem is that we have such a bifurcated media space, right? That half the country lives in one informational reality and half the country lives in a totally different parallel, non-intersecting reality. And I don't know, I think it's, you know, is Fox News going to cover the event in Detroit? Did they cover the event in New Hampshire? And if so, how? Um, I think what you saw in Virginia, and I think to a lesser extent in uh, New Jersey was Republicans trying out a different playbook, which is the economy is doing well, right? We're pretty close to full employment. Uh, employers are having a hard time finding people to take jobs. Well, let's focus on one thing that's not going super great in the economy. Let's focus on inflation. Inflation, 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 inflation. Even though you have, you know, on Wednesday, the he- the chief economist of Moody's said, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that bad. And then you have, okay, these proposals in this bill are broadly popular, let's totally switch the subject of conversation and talk about critical race theory. Let's move this obscure and largely non-controversial academic concept. Let's turn it into a front burner culture war issue. And that will get people mad and drive them to the polls and nobody will be talking about bridges. And I think the other thing that's going to happen, my prediction is um, that a lot of, you know, the 13 people, 13 Republicans, in Congress and the House of Representatives who voted for infrastructure are now getting death threats from other Republicans and real right, like right, right wingers in the Republican Party want them punished, which is crazy. Like, why would you punish somebody for voting across the aisle? So that only 13 people voted for it, but the money is going to all 50 states. So I am sure that eventually Republicans who didn't vote for it, who wanted their fellow party members disciplined, censured, whatever, for it or killed for it, are going to eventually take credit for whatever bridge is built in their (laughs) district or the broadband that is put out. Right. And so, like, I don't think that it's going to be Biden and the Democrats reaping the full political benefits of this, just like they didn't reap the full benefits of Obamacare.
0: Yes. And we saw this earlier in the year, right after Biden became president, when he passed you know, a massive COVID stimulus bill. Most Republicans voted against it. But then a few weeks later, we're turning around and tweeting about how the government is getting restaurant relief to their district, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that, that seems unsurprising. You just made a couple of very interesting points. One of them is I do agree with you that from here until the midterms, a lot of what Biden does or does not do, whatever he's getting done, will be lost in the fog of how the Washington press covers presidents and midterm elections, which is, as you noted, through approval ratings. Uh, there, And I wrote about this for Puck a couple months sure ago. It was a great num- piece. Yeah, his numbers, his numbers started to fall, and there's a rhythm to these things, like you mentioned. There's the honeymoon, they go down, the press turns on the president, they talk about whether he can come back and, you know, that.
2: Well, and they and they sorry again to interrupt, but they also talk about the lowing the falling approval rating, which I think only serves to lower the approval rating.
0: That's like right.
2: somebody who's becoming less popular.
0: Totally. There's a bandwagon effect that goes both ways in both political campaigns and in presidential approval. And you're absolutely right. If you hear atmospherically that Biden isn't doing so well, if a pollster calls you. What yep. do you say when you ask the president? I don't, know. I don't know. The guys at work we're talking about how he's not doing well. He's not doing well. Um, yeah. You know. The second thing is, and and both of us wrote about Virginia and critical race theory. But this gets to something very interesting that you just said at the at the tail end of the piece I wrote. I talked to a Democratic strategist in Virginia who said the kind of culture war, critical race theory stuff that Republicans are trying to run on and change the subject to can only be. Battled against with a democratic economic message that says, Here's what we're doing for you. And, like, sure, I think that's something Democrats have kind of always said in modern times, but I do think the midterms, the next presidential election, that years moving forward, and this has happened before. I mean, remember the book, What's the Matter with Kansas, that came out after Kerry lost in 2004. You know, it made the Argument that at least sold a lot of books that Republicans change the subject to culture war issues to change the subject away from economic issues. And so, can Democrats fight the culture war with an economic message? I think that's an open question. I mean, what Trump seemed to figure out was that running on these like high wattage emotional issues and negative partisanship and identity is enough to overpower yeah. the idea that, hey, like we're taking the lead out of your pipes and installing broadband in your rural communities, which this infrastructure bill does. And I just wanna say, you know, while we're talking about it, the bill includes $73 billion for the electricity grid to carry renewable energy, 66 billion for rail, 65 billion for broadband, billions more for environmental projects, climate resiliency, as I said, removing lead from pipes, electric vehicles, transportation projects in rural areas. Like these are all things that are both like useful things people want, things the government should be doing, quite frankly. And yet it seems hard to imagine that the nitty gritty of those things will surface on cable news and on Twitter for the next 18 months. Right?
2: <laughs> totally. And I, I really agree with you. I think, you know, cable news is like the visual version of, or it's become the visual version of Twitter. You know, just like chase the shiny object that everybody else is chasing and then drop it and chase a different one. Like even the the media that go more in depth, you know, your NPRs and your New York Times and your pucks. See what I did there? You know, even then it's like, how do you write about something that doesn't exist? You can list all the things that you just listed. But I think people minds start to like, Wander and their eyes glaze over, they hear these numbers and these like vague descriptions. But how do you, as a journalist, for example, write about it? Like, how do you write about something that hasn't been built yet, hasn't even been, money hasn't even been allocated to, and the plan has not even like been drawn up yet, right? That's very hard from the media's perspective to cover. When there's this tantalizing and very easy story of falling ratings. And the other point you made, which I think is exactly right, and your I think your pollster is wrong, or your strategist is wrong, I think maybe, you know, it's the economy stupid worked in the 90s, but not in this era, not in the Bush, Swift Boat era, like gay marriage, like running in the middle of two crazy wars going sideways on gay marriage, right, to distract people away from two expensive, probably unnecessary foreign wars and American boys and girls coming back in uh, body bags, like talk about the gays. And in the Trump era, I think the Trump era showed, remember when he first won, the conversation was like, oh, it's economic anxiety. It's, you know, all these people affected by globalization, affected negatively by it, right? It's economic anxiety to the point where that became a punchline, right? Where by the time people gathered in Charlottesville to chant, Jews will not replace us, people were like, oh yeah, look at that economic anxiety go. I think what Trump has shown us, as you pointed out, is that like talking about the economy only works up to a point and doesn't really work when the other side is making you mad about identity issues, right? And Democrats do well when they talk about identity issues. And on the other side, when they mobilize, you know, now they're, you're seeing Democrats starting ahead of the midterms to mobilize, to try to mobilize their black voters and Hispanic voters and young voters. And Republicans do the same by mobilizing and infuriating white voters, right? It's white identity politics on that side. And I think that like, I think liberals often talk about like, well, why do people vote against their economic self-interest, right? Like, why would you vote against somebody who's going to expand your medical protections and your medical coverage and lower your drug prices? Well, because some, like the person closer to you that you believe more is making you mad about, you know, the black family next door or the next county over and or, you know, or about somebody teaching your kids in school that they're racist oppressors and they're coming home crying. And I think that in the in this era where everything is so fragmented and everybody's so siloed, I think those identity issues are a lot a lot and cultural issues are a lot more potent than the economic ones, which is why you immediately saw like as soon as Biden was sworn in, you saw the Republicans like grasping for one of those, right? they tried with Dr. Seuss. Well, that didn't work quite well. Then they tried with, I don't know, did they try with like SpongeBob Squarepants? I don't know. you know, and now they finally they finally lit on critical race theory and it works because white parents can be kind of crazy right <laughs> like, And everybody should read Barratoon Day Thurston, our colleague uh, wrote an amazing, piece about this for Puck about white parents and this backlash to this golem of critical race theory. It's a really amazing and powerful, moving piece.
0: I agree. And I also want to pivot to another story that's at the center of the culture wars right now, which is the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. You know, as we tape this, arguments have have wrapped. The jury is deliberating. So, you know, we could have a verdict any any moment, any day now. But, you know, the reason I say this trial is at the center of the culture wars, which is that is this is a trial that is coming down to self-defense, whether Kyle Rittenhouse was within his rights in the state of Wisconsin to shoot three people, kill two of them, wound a third in the fog of that night in Kenosha after the Jacob Blake incident, after Jacob Blake was paralyzed in the fog of that. The commentary on the left and the right, whatever you think about it, congealed very quickly. You know, as someone who didn't follow that story as closely as I probably should have when it happened, the stuff I heard was a white supremacist acolyte of the Proud Boys went to Kenosha to, you know, shoot protesters and fuck shit up. And on the right, it was this guy was exercising his constitutional rights to carry a weapon. He was a patriot defending businesses. Etc. It's come out in the trial that things were just more nuanced, murky, complicated. Um, it's also come out in the trial that the judge has as his ringtone Lee Greenwood's proud to be an American, that he said a couple weirdly racist things about Chinese food and black people. He's clearly shown a sort of bias toward <laughs> the defense and ridiculed the prosecution. The defense has motioned for a mistrial with bias. What is, beyond placing a bet on the outcome of this trial, what has, what has this trial revealed, not just about the case itself, but about our politics, the atmospherics around it, our media? I mean, it's it's been a fascinating few weeks, to be honest.
2: Yeah, totally. And it's, I think in some ways, like you said, it's become a kind of Rorschach test. And some people look at it and see a legal system that is corrupt and stacked against people of color and that our legal system is basically dedicated to protecting people that look like Kyle Rittenhouse, which you can see in, you know, the judge's deference to Kyle Rittenhouse and the defense, which like, yes, you're innocent till proven guilty. Yes, you have a right to self-defense. But this seems to go above and beyond, you know, this escalated this week to the judge letting Kyle Rittenhouse pick the numbers associated with the jurors out of a, like a lottery drum, you know, because there were 18 jurors chosen and he, 12 needed to be picked and Rittenhouse was pulling those little slips of paper out of the drum, which is just so, like, you don't need to do that for somebody who is um, accused of the things Rittenhouse is doing. And also like, Dismissing the gun charge against Rittenhouse, which you know that people thought that would be the easiest thing to nail him on because he was 17 years old carrying an AR-15 when the age at which you're allowed to carry a have a gun, purchase a gun is 18, and it was dismissed on a technicality. So people, some people look at that and see like, of course, of fucking course, and I think especially people of color look at that and see like, we've told you this four centuries, that this is a legal system that was built to protect slavery and then segregation and the rights of the oligarchy against the regular people, et cetera. And then people on the right look at it and see a young man who was trying to do good, who went to protect property against these marauding socialists and people attacked him and he just acted in self-defense and the liberal mainstream media have nailed him to the cross and have destroyed his life and uh, convicted him before there was even a trial. Uh, I think, as always, with every story, every story is always more nuanced, more complicated than it seems at first blush or or how it's portrayed on Twitter or cable news. I know, like, the New York Times and other publications have done deep dives into this and have shown kind of the murkiness of it. But it has, you know, whether or not Rittenhouse is convicted or not, I think it has exposed, like you said, this rift in our society, the rift in the media coverage of how things are covered, and also has exposed the flaws in our legal system. I was thinking about this before we sat down to tape this. The judge in the case, which who has drawn so much ire on social media with his racist commentary and his deferential treatment of the defense, and not allowing the people killed to be called victims, but allowing them to be called, you know, uh, looters and rioters, right? I think just like the Trump era exposed our naivete and our collective wishful thinking about institutions, right? The institutions will save us. Institutions. Yes, Trump is a maniac, but the institutions will save us. As if institutions are these disembodied or like benevolent transformers or whatever, like comic book action figure you want, who will protect our democracy. Like we needed to believe that, to believe that we have a functional and exceptional system of governance. And I think this is exposing the turns out fiction that judges are not biased, that they're not just objective, but um, like fair arbiters of justice to kind of keep this, it's like believing in the value of the dollar. You know, <laughs> like we have these collective fictions that we all need to believe in to keep this all running. And I feel like this is yet another kind of drawing back of the curtain of like, because you talk to many legal experts and they'll tell you that this judge isn't that exceptional and he isn't that uh, that crazy, that there are a lot of judges like this guy out there.
0: Oh, for sure. And like the, the only reason we are talking about this judge is because he was assigned to this case, which has merited national and international attention. There are thousands of cases every week around the country, in states all over the country, not just red states, where you know judges aren't the benevolent upholders of the law. You know um, that they bring their own biases to play. Um, you know, and like just as a devil's advocate argument here, you know the the right continues to make this point that. You know, Rittenhouse, regardless of what happens in the trial, was already tried in the media, social media world that we live in. He was immediately painted as a white supremacist villain and that he was guilty and will be guilty for the rest of his life on on Google, in public, whatever school he goes to, whatever job he has. He will, for a lot of people, be a white supremacist murderer when the video Shows that it was a little more murky than that, and that the rush to judgment by the press and the left uh, about this guy, whatever his motives, is now being validated by this case. And that's sort of that. The only reason I bring that up is to to further demonstrate what we're talking about, which is the the complications of this case, and that in our political moment in the social media era, it is as you said a Rorschach test, regardless of what the facts of the case are, or the outcome of the case. You just bring to bring to it whatever political priors you have and carry those throughout the trial no matter what. Right.
2: Though I would say that the video is of the actual incident, like the shooting when the gun goes off is murky. But what isn't murky is that he showed up Mm -hmm. in an already heated situation with an AR-15 that he was not legally allowed to be carrying. And, you know, there is a question of, and you had this question in the Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman case of like, is it self-defense if you provoke a situation in which violence can happen? Like, is can you then claim self-defense if you provoke a conflict? And the second thing is that, yes, like some in the, in the mainstream media and liberal media have already painted him before the trial even started as guilty and as a white supremacist and a proud boy and whatever, uh, though I would argue not without cause. There is a whole universe on the right that will sustain him for the rest of his life. You know, he, his defense was paid for by Mike Lindell. He is, has become a darling of the right. I'm sure, you know, if he gets off, he can run for Congress or end up as a talking head on Fox. He's going to be just fine because there's a whole other half of America that for whom he has become not a white supremacist villain, but a hero of law and order and a darling that needs to be supported and helped. So, I am not at all worried about Carl uh, about Kyle Rittenhouse.
0: Kyle Rittenhouse will have a featured speaking slot at CPAC uh, until, if he oh, wants 100%. it, for the rest of his life. Thank you, Julia. This was this was great. I'll see you next week. Thanks, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Eric Johnson of lightningpod.fm, our partner, for his support. And thanks, too, to Liz Goff and Ben Landy for their production help. I'm Peter Hamby, and I will see you next week.